large. Please take your Bibles and turn to the New Testament, to the book of 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. We're going to read in just a moment uh, the entire chapter, and if you were here last Sunday, you might be wondering to yourself, I thought we just did this uh, last Sunday night, I thought we looked at chapter 1. Well, we did. Uh, early in the week, I, I had intended to be in chapter 2 with you tonight. Uh, we looked at the first chapter last Sunday night, and so I was planning to look at at the first part of chapter 2 with you tonight. But uh, on Wednesday, I, I kind of looked at the end of chapter 1 again, and something struck me, especially in verses 9 and 10, that there were some, some things there that, that we didn't look at really last Sunday night, uh, especially, again, verses 9 and 10. And, and the more I looked at chapter 1, uh, the more I noticed that, that Paul addresses here what we could call the fruits of conversion, Last Sunday night, it was, it was Paul's thankfulness for the Thessalonians, but you can also look at this chapter from a little bit different perspective, and, and you can see that Paul talks about some of the fruits of conversion, what we can expect to see in, in the life of a person who knows Jesus Christ. And so I want to look at that with you tonight, First uh, Thessalonians chapter 1, uh, beginning in verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy... To the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. For a long time, Martin Luther, who was the great 16th century Protestant reformer, Luther didn't like the book of James. You you might know this story. He he didn't like James. In in fact, Luther was honestly so disgusted with James, he thought James should be removed from the canon of the New Testament. He he didn't think James belonged in the Bible. He he thought that James, when James makes a statement in chapter 2, that faith without works is dead. Luther was really bothered by that. He thought this really leads to a misunderstanding of the gospel. Faith without works is dead. Luther thought that that statement confuses the the doctrine of justification by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. 
Now, now eventually, Luther understood what James was saying, and, and when Luther wrote his commentary on the book of Galatians, he said this. He said, we conclude with Paul that we are justified solely by faith in Christ without the law and without works. But after a man is justified by faith, he will not remain idle. But like a sound tree, he will bear good fruit. For the believer has the Holy Spirit. And where the Holy Spirit is, he does not permit a man to be idle, but drives him to all the exercises of devotion, to the love of God, to patience and affliction, to prayer, to thanksgiving, and to the practice of love toward all men. In other words, what what Luther was saying in that paragraph is that a person who is truly justified will produce faith. The Spirit of God will not leave that person unchanged, that that there will be fruit in that person's life. Now now the question we ask is, well, what are those fruits? What, What can we expect to see in the life of a person who has been justified by faith alone in Christ alone. Well, when we look at chapter 1, I think Paul gives us six things that flow from true faith. Six fruits of conversion. I think these will be very helpful for us. I I think these are a reminder to us of what the Lord is, is working in us as his people. I'm not going to give you all the points all at once like I usually do. We're just going to take them one at a time. Uh, some of this we, we looked at somewhat uh, last Sunday night, but there's, there's nothing wrong with a refresher. There's nothing wrong with, with looking at a passage again from a different perspective. There, there's a sense in which the, the Bible is like a diamond. Children, you might know that if you have a, a really beautiful diamond, you can hold that diamond up to the light and, and you can look at it from different angles, or you can, you can turn that diamond, and, and it will look differently each time. There'll be a different sort of brilliance to that diamond as you turn it and look at it from different angles. Same thing is true with this. You, you can take the Word of God, and, and you can look at it as we did last week. We looked at chapter 1 from the perspective of Paul's thankfulness, and we, we saw all those things that Paul was thankful for. But then you can take the same chapter and you can, in a sense, hold it up to a different light and you can see that also in this chapter, Paul is saying, here are some fruits that that God's people will see in their lives. And so we're going to look tonight at these six fruits of conversion. Fruit number one is service. You notice in verse 3 that Paul uses three phrases to speak of the Thessalonians. We looked at these last week. Work of faith, labor and love, and steadfastness of hope. In other words, flowing from true faith, flowing from our love for God, flowing from the great hope that we have as Christians, and we do have a great hope, flowing from these things, there will be service, there will be activity for God's kingdom. We, we will desire to be active parts of the body. We will not be content to sit on the sideline. We will not be content to let other people do the work. We will want to serve. We will want to minister to one another. We will want to care for one another. Again, the, the, the immediate illustration of this is VBS. 
VBS starts tomorrow morning. We all come here excited, gung-ho, and by Friday at 12, we're thankful the week is over. But, you know, when you, when you think about it, you think about the, the opportunity we have to serve these children and, and not just give them a, a safe environment, not just give them a fun environment, but, but we're also bringing God's word into their lives. And, and I want to say again, I am very thankful, I am very encouraged that so many of you ha- have committed to being part of this ministry. Many of you, if you're not able to be here, you're going to be praying for this week. I know that. We have over 80 volunteers. I think it might be our highest number of volunteers ever. We, we have people who serve behind the scenes. We have people who have been here all throughout this past week getting all of this stuff ready. Many of you showed up on Wednesday night to get all this stuff set up. We have people teaching. We have classroom leaders. We have people in games and crafts and drama and science and snacks. All, all of this is a wonderful example of works of faith and labors of love. And, and Paul says to the Thessalonians, that's what we will see in the life of a person who has been converted to faith in Christ. You don't say, let someone else do it. You don't say, I can, I can serve, I know that, but I don't want to. As a Christian, we, we want to serve because the Lord Jesus has served us by dying for us. Fruit number one, service. Fruit number two is a response to God's word. We again talked about this last week, but when the Thessalonians heard the gospel preached, they, they didn't respond with indifference. They didn't say, oh, that's nice. doesn't apply to me, but that's nice. They, they didn't let it go in one ear and out the other. They also didn't respond with hostility, as, as many people in Thessalonica did. Many people were hostile towards Paul. But this church in Thessalonica, because of the work of the Spirit within them, they responded with true faith. True faith. And we talk a lot about faith, don't we? Um, Some churches have that in their name. What is faith? What is true faith? Three things. Historically, the Reformed Church has said that there are three aspects to true faith. First of all, true faith always contains knowledge. In order to have true faith, you, you have to know certain truths. For example, you have to know that, that there is a God, that, that this God is holy. You have to know that you're a sinner. You, you have to know that, that you deserve judgment. You have to know that only Jesus can save. And so true faith involves knowledge. Secondly, true faith also involves conviction. That, that means that not only do you know these certain truths, but you also believe them to be true. You you don't just have this general head knowledge that there is a God, but you know, you believe that there is a God. And you believe that Jesus is Savior. And and then third, true faith also contains a wholehearted trust. This is a, a very important aspect of true faith. You have to trust in Christ. You not only believe these things, you not only believe these things to be true, but you believe them to be true for you. You personally trust in and embrace Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That's how the Thessalonians had responded to Paul's ministry and to the preaching of the gospel. In fact, if you jump ahead to chapter 2 and you look at verse 13, 
Paul says, we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. I love that. Paul says, when, you, when we came here and we preached the word of God to you, you, you didn't say to us, oh, that's just the word of men. You didn't say to us, Paul, that's just your opinion of things. You hear a lot of that kind of stuff today. I heard about many years ago, a guy I used to work with, he would say that to me all the time. The Bible is just a book written by men. The Bible is just a man-made book. Children, you're going to hear that growing up in this culture. If you go to a, a public school at some point or you, you are employed in the, in the workforce and, and you work with unbelievers, you're going to hear people say to you, this book is just written by men. Paul says, when you, when you heard the word preached, you didn't say that. Now, we shouldn't be surprised when people say that. That's how unregenerate people think. That's how unregenerate people are. And guess what? If God had not saved us, we would think the same thing. But the Bible says that unregenerate man cannot understand or embrace the word of God. That's why it's not sufficient that we just have eloquence or an airtight argument or a great program or a marketing philosophy. Because at the end of the day, the Holy Spirit must open the heart of an unbeliever to respond to the truth of God. Paul tells us this in 1 Corinthians 2. He says the person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God but considers them foolishness. And he cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. The person who does not have the Spirit, in other words, the person who is unregenerate, cannot understand the Word of God. But when the Word of God does a work on our hearts, when he gives us spiritual life, when he gives us the gift to embrace Christ, we accept this book as the very word of God. That's why this church was founded 25 years ago. This church was founded 25 years ago because a group of people said, this is what the Bible teaches. This is the word of God and we will stand for God's truth. I've been here almost 13 years. And I think, I hope, I believe that that continues to be the attitude of this congregation. You believe the Bible to be the word of God. You love the Bible. You respond to God's word with joy and a desire to follow him. That is a fruit of conversion. That is a fruit of God's work in you. And it's a wonderful thing to see. Fruit number three, joy in the midst of suffering. Joy in the midst of suffering. We all know that there are times in our lives when we complain. Now, if we're honest, we will have to confess that most of our complaints are what we call first world problems. The grocery store didn't have what I was looking for. The line at the gas station was so long. I just washed my car and now it's raining. When, when Paul talks here about much affliction, you see that phrase in verse 6, 
Those aren't the kind of problems he was referring to. The Thessalonians didn't get stuck in a long line at Save Mart. The Thessalonians weren't complaining that it was a bit too hot outside. The, the much affliction that they suffered was that some of them lost their jobs. Children, imagine that. If, if this week, mom or dad came home and said, you know what? Lost my job today because I'm a Christian. Some of them lost their property. Imagine, children, if your parents came to you and said, we can't live here anymore. Our, our house has been taken away from us because we're Christians. Some of them lost their, their freedom. They were thrown into prison. Some of them even lost their lives. They were killed. They were put to death because they followed Jesus. They had suffered much affliction, but it, it didn't make them bitter. It, it didn't cause them to go around with a, a bitterness and an anger welling in their hearts. It, it didn't cause them to say, how could God do this to me? How could God allow this to happen? I don't know about this Christianity stuff anymore. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go do something else. No, they responded with joy. And that joy was produced in them, Paul says, by the Holy Spirit. Now, Paul was not writing this from an ivory tower, was he? Paul, Paul was writing this as a man who, who had much difficulty and much suffering in his life. One such example is, is found in Acts chapter 16. You might remember in Acts 16 that, that Paul and Silas get thrown into jail for preaching the gospel. In, in fact, um, um, before being thrown in jail, they, they have their clothes stripped off of them and they're beaten. And then they take them and they throw them in jail. And, and then they put chains on them and they lock them up in prison. Imagine that was you. And I, I thought this week, what would I do if that was me? Children, do you know what, what Paul and Silas were doing? They, they, they get their clothes ripped off. They, they get beaten. They get thrown in a jail cell. They're shackled in chains. Do you know what they're doing while they're locked up in prison? They're singing. They're singing hymns. I don't know what it was that they were singing, but they were singing in the midst of their suffering, there was joy. There was singing. As a pastor, I have a kind of a unique position of being around a lot of people as, as they or their loved ones approach death. Time after time, my, my experience has been, since I've been here, my experience has been that, that even in the face of suffering, even as a person or a family walks through the valley of the shadow of death, there is still a deep sense of joy within them. That's a, that's a beautiful thing to see, and that's a fruit of conversion. Even now, within this congregation, and I'm not going to name names and embarrass people, but, but even right now, there are people in our congregation who are suffering. They're hurting and yet there is a joy within them, a joy that is produced by the Holy Spirit. That's a fruit of conversion. Fruit number four is a positive impact on society. A 
positive impact on society. Word about these Thessalonians was spreading, wasn't it? All, all throughout the region. It, it wasn't just in the immediate area. It wasn't just in Macedonia and Achaia. Palestine, Syria, Asia Minor. All of these places are, are being impacted by the Thessalonians. And, and I don't think it was just word was getting out that, you know, there are these people who used to worship idols and, and used to go to, to pagan promiscuous festivals, but, but now they've changed. I think that's true, but, but, but I think it also means that they were using the means that God had given to them to get the gospel out into the world. In particular, the Thessalonians used the, the strategic location of Thessalonica being on a trade route. You remember I told you that last Sunday night. Thessalonica was very strategically located, and so a lot of people coming in, a lot of people going out, and they used that to get the gospel out. This means that this was a church that was outward-facing. They weren't only thinking about themselves. They weren't only ministering to one another, as important as that is. But they also had this desire to spread the gospel because they knew what God had done for them. They knew what God had delivered them from. They, they knew that Jesus was their only hope in life and in death, and they wanted other people to know about Jesus. That's what they wanted. I was talking to one of you last Sunday night, and this person was telling me about the, the opportunities that they have to, to share the gospel in the gym that they work out in. That's awesome. What a, what a great opportunity to, to just be the church in the world, to, to just wherever we're at, share the gospel. Being a faithful Christian witness doesn't mean you have to go to seminary. It doesn't mean you have to be a pastor. It doesn't mean you have to be a missionary. It doesn't mean you have to be a full-time Christian worker. It, it simply means to be a faithful follower Faithful proclaimer, faithful sharer, faithful witness wherever we are. At work, at home, the neighborhood, school, wherever. To use the opportunities the Lord gives to us to, to tell others of Jesus. Now if you, if you think that the Thessalonians use their strategic location on this trade route to get the gospel out to the world, I, I think we would do well to, to ask the question, what things can we use to get the gospel out into the world? A lot of people use the internet and they use social media for evil. There's no question about that. But, but the internet and social media are not evil in and of themselves. And so we need to ask the question, how can we use the technology of today to share the gospel? Why would we not use those means? Don't you think Spurgeon would use those means? Don't you think Calvin would use those means? We need to think more strategically, perhaps, about what means can we use in 2023 to get the gospel out to this world? And as we do so, we, we need to remember that God's given us a promise in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 55 he says, as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, 
God says, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty. It will accomplish what I desire for it, and it will achieve the purpose for which I sent it. Brothers and sisters, let's use whatever means God has given to us to proclaim the gospel, to promote the gospel. And as we do that, let's also believe God's promise that that he will accomplish his perfect purposes. He will not let his word return to him void. I think so often, too often, we we don't have enough faith. We we do something and we go, ah, it's not going to work, but we'll try it anyway. We need to believe God, what he says in his word. We need to believe what he tells us. And so this was a church that made a positive impact in their society. That's a fruit of conversion. Fruit number five is a change in direction. Here's the verse we didn't look at last week. Notice verse nine. He says that these Thessalonians had turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Notice that word that's translated turned. The the Greek word literally means to to turn around or to, to go in the opposite direction. Now let me give you an illustration. Let's say tomorrow night, children, let's say tomorrow night you're out on a walk. You're walking down the street with your brothers, your sisters, your mom and your dad. As you're going down the street, you look up and all of a sudden you see a really, really nasty, mean looking dog. And the closer you get, you start hearing that dog growling at you. I'm going to guess that most of you are not going to say, hey, let's go pet the dog. You're going to turn around and you're going to go back the other direction. That's kind of the idea of what Paul is talking about here. You you turn from walking one direction and, and you turn around and you go in another direction. That's what Paul's saying about the Thessalonians. By by God's grace, by the power of the Holy Spirit, this is what they had done. They had turned from the worship of false gods and false idols to the worship of the one true God. Paul said something similar in Acts chapter 14. In in Acts 14, Paul Paul heals this man in Lystra from a, uh, he he had been crippled from birth. And and you might remember the story, the the people in Lystra see this and they they see that this man has been healed. He's he's never been able to walk his entire life. And and Paul heals him and the people in Lystra come running to Paul and, and they say, the gods have come down to us in human form. In other words, they thought Paul was a god. And, and Paul says, friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We, we are bringing you good news and we are telling you to turn from these worthless things, these worthless idols to the living God who made the earth and the sea and everything in them. Idols are false. Idols are dead. Idols are worthless. Idols can do nothing for you. We saw that this morning from Revelation 17. The shiny toys and trinkets of the world which appear to be so promising and so appealing and so attractive. They can't do anything for you. Now this must have been a very radical change for these Thessalonians. They had grown up in a world that was steeped in idolatry. They they lived in a world that that worshipped many, many gods. In fact, um, just 50 miles to the 
to the southwest of Thessalonica was Mount Olympus. Mount Olympus was considered to be the home of the gods. And so they lived really close to this place where where all the gods apparently lived, but by God's grace, God had opened their eyes to see that they were going the wrong direction, the wrong way, that these idols could do nothing for them. And they turned to the living God. And this is a fruit of conversion. When, When God brings a person to saving faith, that person's whole direction of life is changed. In fact, notice that little word serve in verse 9. See that word? It's the Greek word douluo, which, which means literally to be a slave. No longer were the Thessalonians slaves of their idols. No longer were they slaves of these gods who were worthless. But they were now slaves of the one true God. But the point is this, we we don't want to have the mistaken idea that that when God saves us, he sets us free from sin, he sets us free from idol worship, and guess what? Hey, now we can do whatever we want to do. We're free to live for ourselves. We're free to call the shots. We're, We're free to do whatever it is that we feel like doing. That's not true. Christian, now instead of being a servant of of, of sin and, and Satan and the kingdom of darkness, you're now a servant of God. You're a slave to God. That's how powerful and that's how radical conversion is. One commentator says this, when, when God converts a man, he changes the entire person. Not only the emotions, so that one regrets his former manner of life, but but also the mind and the will with respect to which he experiences a complete changeover. And all of this becomes apparent in his outward conduct. We have a new allegiance, don't we? We don't serve this world. We don't serve the God of this world. Our allegiance is the one living and true God, the one who has saved us from our sin, the one who has saved us from judgment. We're slaves to him. And we're called to honor him with our lives. That's another fruit of conversion. That God works this change of direction in us. Fruit number six, the last one. And that is looking for the second coming of Jesus. Verse 10 says, And to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. When God converts a person, when God brings a person from false worship to true worship, when he causes a a person to embrace Jesus as the only savior of sinners, there is a radical reorientation in that person's life. No longer are they living for the things of this world. No longer are their thoughts and priorities dominated by the things of this world. Instead, that person is now living for a better life. Their their priorities, their passions are different. This is a fruit of conversion. Waiting for Jesus. Looking for Jesus. Longing for Jesus. And it's not just some kind of pie-in-the-sky waiting. It's not like that phrase that maybe you've heard before, that person is so heavenly-minded, they are of no earthly good. That's not what, what Paul is talking about. 
looking for the return of Jesus changes how you live your life now. Knowing that that revelation is true and, and all the things we're looking at on Sunday mornings are true. Knowing that Jesus is coming. Knowing that this world will be judged. Knowing that we are going to our eternal inheritance. That changes everything here. Everything. As I said this morning, many of you as parents are making sacrifices for your children. Because you want them given a Christian worldview. And that's vital. And and living for the second coming changes us. If you have your Bible, go over for just a moment to Titus chapter 2. And I want to wrap up with this. Titus chapter 2. Titus is a few books to the right of 1 Thessalonians. Titus chapter 2, and and I want you to look at verse 11. Titus 2 verse 11 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Do you see the connection? Waiting for our blessed hope, waiting for the return of our Savior, makes us a people who are zealous for good works. It doesn't make us a people who go, yay, I got my fire insurance. Now I can do what I want. No, it makes us a people who are zealous for good works. These are the fruits of conversion. This is what God will work in the lives of his children, not perfection. So don't go home tonight and think that you're going to have perfection and complete victory in all of these areas. There is no perfection in this life. But these are the things that we will see in our lives. If we are Christians, if we are believers in Jesus, we will see these things in our lives. We will see a willingness to serve. We will see an embracing of the word of God. We will see that that there is joy, deep joy, in the midst of our suffering. We will see that, that we have a desire to impact the lost dark, dying world in which we live. We we will see a, a reorientation of our lives turning from the dead, worthless idols of this world to the one true and living God. And and we will see a heart that cries out, Come quickly, Lord Jesus. And we will see a, a life that shows that we are looking for a better world than this one. That's what the Spirit will work in his people. And we pray that God will continue to work that within each one of us so that we as individual Christians and we as a congregation would honor and glorify him. Let's bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you tonight for your word to us. We thank you that as we 
we read these things, Lord, we know that, that we, are, we fall short. We, we know our weaknesses and our failures. We, we confess that we often do the things we don't want to do, like Paul says in Romans 7. And yet, Lord, we also know that, that your spirit is all-powerful and your spirit is at work in us. And he will continue to work these things in us. Lord, we pray that you would continue to grow us, continue to sanctify us, so that we might serve one another and so that we also might serve the world in which we live. We pray this in Jesus' name.